Turn with me, if you would, in your copy of the Scripture to Acts chapter 15. In God's sovereignty, we're bringing emphasis today to the gospel. We want gospel clarity. And it's important as we become um, one church meeting in two locations, now more than ever, that we have gospel clarity. As a quick review, we've been asking and answering questions in this sermon series, questions like, what's the purpose of the church? Why do we gather together on Sunday mornings? Why would GEBC and Poplar Creek, PCC come together? What do we hope to accomplish? To answer these questions, we're making our way through the last half of the book of Acts, which covers Paul's missionary journeys. To date, we've learned that we are together by the gospel, and we are together for the gospel. But even as we affirm the gospel, let's pause and make sure that we understand what we mean by the gospel. We're going to pause and work to define, find gospel clarity this morning because Luke pauses for gospel clarity in his unfolding narrative. Luke is the author of Acts, and he pauses in chapter 15 to tell the story of the Jerusalem Council. And he pauses right between, right, Acts 13 and 14 are the first missionary journey of Paul and Barnabas. Acts 16 is the second missionary journey they're sent off. But there's this pause, this pregnant moment in between where they say, let's make sure we're getting this right. And I can see us needing to do that this morning. As we onboard a second campus, we want gospel clarity. We want gospel clarity because it's the reason that Paul went out in the first place. Something had so deeply impacted him. And he saw God in such powerful movement, he wanted to make sure he was getting this right. We also want gospel clarity because it's what we want to offer to our children and to our neighbors. It's what we believe the Holy Spirit is using to save people, to grow his church. So I'm going to make my way through Acts 15, the first 21 some odd verses. I'm going to read and then pause and and talk about it a little bit. I did horrible on this in the first service. I'm so thankful we have a second service. (laughs) If you're an athlete or if you're playing an instrument and you you play one concert really bad, aren't you thankful you get another concert at some point or there's another game? So... um, you know, the good, word, the, good, the good thing is, regardless of how I did, God's word was read publicly <laughs> and always has a good impact on us. All right, Acts 15, verse 1. Certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers. Quote, unless you're circumcised, according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved, unquote. So that's what they're teaching. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some other believers, to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. That is, how are we saved? Or what is the gospel? The church sent them on their way, and as they traveled through Phoenicia and Samaria, they told how the Gentiles had been converted. That's God's goodness to the Gentiles. Because that's part of what's in dispute here is, how are Gentiles saved? But truly, how is anybody saved? 
Jew or Gentile. This news made all the believers very glad as they heard it along the way. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and elders to whom they reported everything. Uh, to whom they were welcomed by the apostles to whom they reported everything God had done through them. So we'll pause there for a moment. Let me set the stage. Paul and Barnabas had just returned from their first missionary journey. That's Acts 13 and 14. We covered that over the last few weeks. And at the end of chapter 14, they had returned to Antioch of Syria, and they'd settled back in. They were back in the fellowship. Antioch is uh, the church from which, the town from which they had been sent out initially. So things are full circle. They're back in their home church. Upon their return, they learned that some fellow Christians had come from Judea, about 400 miles south of them. Judea is the region in which Jerusalem sits. They had come from Judea to Antioch, and they were teaching. They had a particular teaching for the Gentiles, that is, the non-Jewish Christians. And they were teaching that the, the Gentiles had to be circumcised. They had to keep the law of Moses if they were going to be saved. The group teaching this doctrine will later in this passage be identified as the party of the Pharisees. Pharisees were Jewish men, experts in the law. Now, these Pharisees had been converted. They were trusting in Christ as Savior, but they were teaching something different than Paul and Barnabas had been teaching. In fact, Paul himself was a Pharisee, so he could go toe-to-toe with these folks. These particular Pharisees had accepted Christ as Messiah, but they believed Gentiles needed to keep the Jewish law if they were going to trust in the Jewish Messiah, Jesus. Keeping the Jewish law for men included circumcision, and then for men and women it included things like the food laws, eating kosher, clothing, the way you dress, the festivals, keeping the Sabbath, that type of thing. To summarize, here's how these Pharisees, the party of the Pharisees, present the gospel. My question for us is this good news. Faith in Jesus plus keeping the law of Moses equals salvation. This is the gospel according to the party of the Pharisees. Does this strike us as good news? And I ask, I ask because the gospel is very, very important to us. And I ask because the gospel literally means good news. Is that really good news? Paul and Barnabas didn't think it was good news. Luke writes that it brought, this teaching brought them into sharp disrespect and debate with these folks. And so they appealed to a higher authority. They kicked it up to a higher court, right? They said, let's take this to Jerusalem. Let's present this to the apostles and to the elders of the church in Jerusalem. And so they take a road trip. They travel to Jerusalem, about 400 miles south, so that they could get clarity on exactly what is the gospel. This next section, beginning in verse 5, It fast-forwards to when they're standing in front of the apostles and the elders, the leaders of the church in Jerusalem, and they're presenting both sides. And they're asking for the leadership in Jerusalem to adjudicate, make a decision. And we're going to hear from Peter, and we're going to hear again from Paul and Barnabas, just really short, and then we're going to hear from James, the half-brother of Jesus. Verse 5. Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, quote, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses, unquote. Pretty straightforward from their vantage point. 
the apostles and elders met to consider this question. What is the gospel? Uh, How are men and women saved? After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, there's a quote, Brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. You know, in other words, I was called by God and did in fact preach to the Gentiles and they came to faith in Jesus. Verse 8, God who knows the heart, he knows our hearts, showed that he accepted them, how? By giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. We know that they heard the gospel. We know that they received the gospel by faith because we saw the Holy Spirit poured out on them just as the Holy Spirit came to us. He did not, verse 9, he didn't discriminate between us and them. We're the same. It happened for us the same way. For he purified their hearts by works of the law. No, no. He purified their hearts by faith. If you're an underliner, man, I would, I'd underline that. How are we justified before God? Is it because I'm a really snappy dresser? By faith in another man's righteousness, Jesus's. Verse 10, now then, why do you try to test God? He's speaking to the party of the Pharisees. By putting on the necks of the Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able, unable, have been able to bear. A crushing yoke, a heavy burden. Why do you test God like this? No, right? Exclamation part. No, we believe it's through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved just as they are. That Jews and Gentiles are saved in the same manner, by God's grace, through faith in another man. Not by works of the law, not by praying a certain amount of time, or giving a certain amount of money, or attending a church for a certain number of years. All good things, we'll get to that. But that's not, in fact, how we're saved. That's not, it cannot be, the basis of our hope for heaven eternally. Because what happens when we don't pray, or we don't go to church, or we hold on to our money? So the party of the Pharisees, their gospel's on the screen. Faith in Jesus plus keeping the law of Moses equals salvation. The apostles and elders, they discussed this, they heard it, Peter stands up. He says, you guys know how I was called to preach to the Gentiles and the Holy Spirit descended upon them and they believed. God knows their hearts and he saved them by faith in Jesus. You know that. The point he's making is that Gentiles receive the Spirit by trusting in Jesus, just as the Jews, not by keeping the law, which Peter then describes as a yoke. A yoke is what beasts of burdens put on their neck to pull either a cart or a plow. It's that wooden thing. Picture in your mind a really heavy backpack. Lord willing, by the time we leave here this morning, nobody has the burden of performance on their shoulders with regard to salvation. And in suburbia, it's really hard to shake this burden because we have performance in our, at school to get grades and get into colleges and to get promotions at work and meet sales quotas. 
performance is the backpack that we do fairly well at, factually, in suburbia. If we're not careful, we think it's going to get us into relationship with our Creator, and it does not. Peter says, no, the gospel of the party of the Pharisees, he says no to that. We believe it's through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved, just as they are, that everybody's saved by grace through faith, apart from anything they've done, are doing, or will do. When he uses the word grace in verse 11 to describe the means of salvation, what he's saying is that people are saved apart from works. Salvation comes to us as a gift. It's something we receive and open and enjoy. If we were to represent Peter's gospel, it would look like the following. Faith in Jesus plus nothing else equals salvation. Is this our understanding of the gospel? Because frankly, folks, I'll be blunt, that strikes me as really good news. That's something I would go next door and tell my neighbors. That's amazing news. Next, Paul and Barnabas stand up. It's just one verse long. It's verse 12. The whole assembly became silent as they listened to Paul and Barnabas, or Barnabas and Paul, telling about the signs and wonders God had done among the Gentiles through them. So it appears that Paul and Barnabas stepped to the platform next to confirm what Peter said. Yes, we're saved by grace through faith apart from anything we've done, and God has opened the door to the Gentiles. Let me tell you how we know God's opened the door to the Gentiles. He's performed signs and wonders, and they begin to regale the apostles and the leaders of the church in Jerusalem with all these signs and wonders that God had done for the Gentiles and in the lives of the Gentiles to save them. Now, in the first century, the party of the Pharisees wanted to add circumcision and keeping the law to the gospel. Faith plus keeping the law. So after first service, somebody came up and said, and perhaps on the podcast you could talk about the place of the law. How is the law good? Psalm 1. Right? How is the law good? We can talk about that on the podcast. Well, I'll try to get to it before the end of today. We're probably 21 centuries later not struggling with circumcision as a means to, uh, as an added means to sal- our salvation. But folks, it's so common to try to add something to faith in Jesus. Because our flesh loves to add activities that are performative to our faith because it makes us feel good. Then we can pat ourselves on the back. Look at the burden I'm carrying on your behalf, God. Look how fast I'm running, how high I'm jumping to try and demonstrate my love for you. Paul says really clearly in Romans, by works of the law, no one will be saved. No one will be justified. It could be faith in Jesus plus taking communion in a certain way. It could be faith in Jesus plus reading the Bible a certain number of times. Communion's a good thing. Reading the Bible's a good thing. It could be faith in Jesus plus praying for a certain period of time or in a certain way. Prayer is good, but we can add it to the gospel if we're not careful. It could be faith in Jesus plus giving a certain amount of money. I grew up in a tradition, a church tradition, It said you're saved by faith in Jesus plus speaking in tongues. It's a cumbersome culture. 
I mean, I've had friends who fake speaking in tongues so that they can feel comfortable in the culture in which they wanted to fellowship regularly. But the, gospel's, the gospel relieves us of pretending. Whatever the law is, and we have, we have prayer at the end of service almost every Sunday, it, it occurs to me some of us need to come forward for prayer potentially that are carrying a crushing burden of performative religion. I'll be down front. Ken Dreifout would be down front. We'd love to pray with you. Look at what Paul wrote about how gospel confusion steals our freedom. We opened this morning by saying where we sang, if Christ sets you free, you're free indeed. Free from what? Free from the crushing burden of performative religion, merit-based salvation. All of Galatians, if you want to read it, is, is really written to address gospel clarity. Paul says, this matter arose because some false believers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom we have in Christ Jesus and to make us slaves. We did not give in to them for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. If you're struggling to understand the gospel, let me encourage you. Let somebody pray for you so you can set aside that crushing burden, whatever it is. I uh, thumb through Instagram every now and then, and there's one person I've been following who... um, She's a former um, evangelical, as she describes herself, a pastor's kid who is deconstructing faith, that is, coming away from evangelicalism. And she just post after post about um, the, the grotesque nature of the church, all the church's faults and flaws. And folks, we have lots of faults and flaws. A part of her narrative is that she spent all her growing up and everybody she knew was just pretending Gospel clarity always leads to our freedom. Gospel confusion always leads to our slavery. And pretending is a part of that. Would that we were a church and a people that are increasingly uh, unmasked. I put a little chart together about how there's gospel clarity brings freedom and gospel confusion brings slavery. And I'd like to just read through it, walk us through this. Peter stands up among the Jerusalem council, and and he talks about the law as a yoke. And don't put us back under that yoke. Don't don't confuse the gospel with law-keeping. The gospel brings freedom. How does it bring freedom? It invites us to acknowledge our sin. Gospel confusion leads to slavery because because it requires us to pretend that we're not sinful, that we're better than we really are, that we're clearing certain hurdles and running at certain rates of speed, that we're performing, that we're keeping up, that, that we deserve something, God's attention, God's love. The good news of the gospel is that while we were yet sinners, Christ came and died for us. I see some of you nodding. I, I'm praying that washes over you like, just fresh water. Gospel clarity provides freedom 
by celebrating my forgiveness just as I am. I, I'm, I'm loved perfectly, perfectly. There's nothing I can do to make him love me more or less. I'm loved perfectly in Christ Jesus. Doesn't mean he's not at work in my life to grow me out of my immaturities. And we don't have time for Sherry to get up here and name those. So he's growing me and he's bringing me in maturity. But I'm loved perfectly. Gospel confusion leads to slavery by conditioning my forgiveness based upon my behavior. Gospel clarity provides freedom by comforting me with the message of God's love. Despite the guilt and shame associated with my sin, I can be comforted. In Corinthians, he's called the God of all comfort. Romans chapter 2, we're told that the love of God brings us to repentance. Yes, the fear of God's the beginning of wisdom. It's the beginning. That's not all there is to God. Yes, he's our creator, and we are guilty before him. And we need to repent of our sin and acknowledge it and receive the grace offered towards us in Christ. But it's his love, his provision for us in Christ that draws us to him. Gospel confusion leads to slavery because it terrifies me with the message of God's wrath through the guilt and shame associated with my sin. Gospel clarity provides freedom for urging me to follow Jesus fearlessly. We are free to take risks as men and women trusting in Christ. We've never had a campus before, Glenelg Bible Church. We are making this up as we go. I, it, it's been a long time since I have felt this far out on a limb. That's where we're supposed to be, folks. We're supposed to be taking risks. Gospel confusion leads to slavery by warning me to follow Jesus flawlessly. There's this threat, don't goof up. We'd all love to walk on water, but we don't feel the freedom to get out of the boat. Gospel freedom invites us to take risks. Let's live free. Let's acknowledge our sinfulness. I lead a group on Thursday night of men. It's a, it's a group aimed at confession, really. The entirety of the group, it's an hour and a half, just kind of building towards a fulcrum of confession and then healing prayer. Let's live free. Let's not pretend our sin doesn't exist. Let's celebrate the forgiveness offered to us in Christ. Let's lay aside the burden of trying to merit God's favor and bask in his love for us. And let's take some risks. In fact, if you are here this morning and you've not trusted Christ as Savior before, you've not verbalized it, and you feel in your heart this, uh, this rising up of an interest to, to, to accept Christ, then the Spirit's at work in your life. Let me encourage you to let your lips profess what your heart is wanting to affirm and be saved. Scripture tells us with our heart we believe and with our mouth we profess. You just do that right where you're seated and talk to your creator and say, I want to know that freedom of the gospel. I want to get off the merit-based roller coaster of he loves me, he loves me not. God loves me, God loves me not, right? I want to get off that roller coaster and I want to know that I am loved perfectly in Christ Jesus. Just say that to your creator. Scripture says you'll be saved. All right, we've heard from Peter. 
And we've heard from Paul and Barnabas, short and sweet. We're going to hear from James. Now, James is the half-brother of Jesus. Uh, same mom, different dad, right? Uh, Christ was conceived by the Holy Spirit. So uh, James's mother is Mary, and he writes the epistle of James. And so I point that out because he, as one of the leaders in the church in Jerusalem, uh, famously said in his epi- epistle, uh, faith, plus wor- uh, faith without works is dead. So we should all be asking ourselves, faith without works is dead, James said, or faith without works is useless, is another way to translate. So we should ask ourselves, if we're going to put the gospel in an equation, faith plus nothing else equals salvation, then where do works fit there? And James is going to spell it out. Verse 13, when they had finished, James spoke up. Brothers, he said, listen to me. Simon, also named Peter, right? Peter has described to us how God first intervened to choose a people for his name from the Gentiles. So James affirms Peter's declaration that Gentiles were included by grace through faith, apart from anything they'd done. The words, then he says the words of the prophets are in agreement with this, and now he's going to quote Amos. So he said, Peter got it right, and Amos foretold it. Verse 16, after this I'll return and rebuild David's fallen tent, that's the Jews, Its ruins I will rebuild and I'll restore it. Why? That the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles. I'm going to rebuild the Jews through faith in Christ so the Gentiles can be brought in to be part of my people. Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord, who does these things, things known from long, long ago. So he says, Peter got it right, Amos foretold it. In verse 19, he says, It's my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. How would we make it difficult? By putting the crushing yoke of the law on their necks. Instead. He's got a third way. Instead. We should write to them. Telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. Really odd activities, except for one, the sexual immorality we get still 21 centuries later. The previous three, what are we going to do with those, right? Why should we write to them and tell them these four things? He says in verse 21, why? Because the law of Moses, for the law of Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times and is read in the synagogues on every Sabbath. In other words, he's saying Judaism is is broadly known, it's well known in all the cultures of the ancient world. The law is publicly read in the synagogues on every Sabbath. People know how the Jews live They abstain from meat, sacrificed to idols. They stay sexually moral. They don't eat meat that's been strangled, and they don't drink blood. Why do these things matter? Why does he want to write about these four things? The answer is that each of these activities are associated with with pagan worship in the ancient world. They offered and ate meat sacrificed to idols. You'd go to a pagan temple, there'd be uh, bloodletting, there'd be meat sacrificed to these, these idols. And so then that meat would make its way into the marketplace. And Jews were really careful not to buy that meat because they didn't want to be a part of anything having to do with pagan worship. 
They also practice sexual immorality, um, take the temple uh, of fertility in the ancient city of Ephesus, Art, the temple of Artemis. If you went to worship at the pagan temple of Artemis, you know, their sexual immorality was a part of the pagan rituals. There were actually prostitutes, both male and female, that were hired as a part of the worship of that fertility goddess. And James is saying, let's be really clear, we want no part of that. And then uh, meat that was strangled. Well, if meat's strangled, uh, the thought here is that it, the blood's not let from it. So the blood is still in the body of the animal. And then in the ancient uh, Eastern and Near Eastern world, they would often drink blood. He's saying, we want no part of that. Why? He, because blood was given for atonement in the Old Testament, Leviticus chapter 17. In the blood is the life, God said to his people, and blood is given for the atoning of sins. Christ shed his blood to ransom us from our sin. And so Jews were really careful about these four things. They didn't eat meat that was sacrificed to idols. They wanted nothing to do with that pagan worship. They rem that's first commandment and second commandment. You should have no other God before me. You should not make any images of me, right? So don't break those commandments and don't even buy meat associated with breaking those commandments. Sexual immorality, seventh commandment, don't commit adultery. And so sexual morality was a part of the Jewish community, or it was meant to be a part um, the dysfunctional family of God, right? The tale of the Old Testament. Uh, there was lots of sexual morality, but they were to abstain from it. And then blood, animals with blood who had been strangled, the blood hadn't been let from it, or blood itself, you weren't to drink it. Why? Because blood was used to, uh, to atone from sin, for sin. So James is saying, and I want, I want to give you an equation for what I believe is truly, truly good news. It's on the screen. Faith in Jesus, I think this is the gospel, plus nothing else equals salvation that leads to works of righteousness. We're saved by grace through faith, apart from anything we do, for works of righteousness. I'm just quoting Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10. For it's by grace you've been saved, through faith. This is not of yourself. It's the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. This is really, really good news. Here's what, how I understand the gospel. I understand that I am dead in my sins, Ephesians 2. Dead men make no decisions. But God in his infinite love and mercy comes to me and brings me to life. He, he, he regenerates me is a theological word. He brings me to life through faith in his son, what Jesus called the new birth. That we're born again by God's grace his intervention through faith in the righteousness of another man by trusting in him. And it leads to salvation that produces good works. So the same Holy Spirit that regenerates, that brings us to faith, produces in us good works. Do you see how good a news that is? 
John chapter 15, verse 5, apart from me you can do nothing. You can do zero, nothing. The suburban church must ask itself, what makes me feel good about myself? On what basis do I feel good about myself? And we must be very careful that we don't hold that up to God and say, you should feel good about me too because of this. When it's all stripped away, Jesus says, apart from him we can do nothing. We were dead in our sins and trespasses, and God, who's infinite in his love, moves towards us by his Holy Spirit, brings us to faith in Jesus, and then that same Holy Spirit, the one that raised Christ from the dead, produces good works in us. We were created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which were prepared in advance for us to do. That's stunning news because it means the Holy Spirit initiated with me. It means God's holding on to me. I'm not holding on to God. That's really good news. It means there's nothing I can do to lose my salvation. And there's every reason to believe the Spirit's at work in me such that I'm going to have a change of appetites. I'm going to go from my appetite for sin to an appetite for righteousness and godliness. So don't be surprised if even, and this is the wonder of grace. Some people say if you preach too much grace, your church will do nothing. Scripture, all of Scripture to the contrary. When we preach grace, then the Holy Spirit moves us. When we preach we're free in Christ, then the Holy Spirit is moving and working in our lives, and He's getting all the glory. Is this making sense? He's bringing Himself glory through us. And my appetites are changing so that I'm decreasingly interested in sin and increasingly interested in emulating the character and the conduct and the concerns of my Savior, who saved me apart from anything I've done, am doing, or will do. This freedom actually makes me more eager, and it makes the people of God more eager to honor them, because we honor God because we're completely free. We can't fail here. We can act immature, for sure. We can embrace the old self and but he's calling us out of that. And he's telling us to go on to maturity because therein lies the joy. Amen? I'll pray for us and we'll close. Father, we ask for your goodness to us as a people. Help us understand the gospel. Give us clarity. If there are some here, if we, if we are hanging on to works righteousness for merit-based approval. Father, strip us of that. Free us from that so that we can bask in the freedom that's ours through the knowledge of your love for us in Christ. For his glory and our own good, I ask. Amen. Let's stand and sing.